0: International Astronautics Congress 2016 reactions and analysis. You're listening to Specscast. Welcome to Specscast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. I'm Phil, and TJ's here with me today. Hello. And. We're going to talk about the International Astronautics Congress 2016 that happened in Guadalajara, Mexico, and some other news things that happened recently. At the time of this recording, uh, the Congress happened about a week ago. So after kind of all the hype settled down and we're actually going to take a look at some, you know, our reactions to the Congress itself and some things we wish we saw and, um, you know, what we, what we think about SpaceX's plan to get to Mars in general. Okay. so. First order of business, let's talk about news. Blue Origin recently tested their in-flight abort system for their New Shepard rocket. Um, Down in Texas, they launched a capsule aboard a New Shepard, which is a small um, suborbital rocket. And at max Q, which is the point in ascent where the rocket experiences the most um, stresses due to aerodynamic forces on the rocket, they initiated their abort sequence and it worked a little engine ignited in the bottom of the capsule uh, brought the capsule down safely and the new shepherd rocket um, performed a propulsive landing and landed right there at the uh, launch site so cool stuff
1: yeah it was really exciting Uh, i got to watch it live uh, on their live stream which was super cool Uh, it's really impressive the progress they've been making where they've had a their first rocket so they got the guidance system. They've got the BE-3 hydrolox engine working, uh, and they had a very successful first test, which we were talking about last fall. Uh, and they've launched four times, I think, with the same first with stage. The, with the same first stage. Uh, obviously, it's not the same scale and the same mission profile as a SpaceX booster, uh, but they were successful with every time with landing. Uh, they've tried um, a pair, a simulated parachute failure on the capsule. Uh, test on the previous mission, and that was successful, and then they tested the abort motor on this test. Uh, And so they're getting very close to being able to take paying passengers inside the capsule. So they'll probably have some test pilots in there for the first time, uh, but we could see probably like mid-year next year paying customers going into suborbital space for a couple minutes, which if you compare it to their direct competitors, which is uh, Virgin Galactic, they've... Made incredible progress very quickly. Mm-hmm. Where they've Virgin Galactic's been trying to take Spaceship Two, which is their tourist uh, suborbital space plane, they've obviously had some development uh, setbacks with the accident uh, two years ago. Um, but Blue Origin has gone from a simple rocket with capsule to almost ready for passengers very quickly.
0: Yeah, in almost a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it's really interesting to see. Um, this rapid reusability um, on a small scale. So even though uh, New Shepard isn't as large as a Falcon 9, it still you know, basically has the same idea behind it. You launch it up, you fire the rocket engine retro propulsion, so you're firing it into the direction of travel, legs come out and it lands at the launch site. That's the, that's the concept. Smaller scale, but it's worked five times flawlessly with the same hardware. Um, so as SpaceX begins to land, their boosters on, on their ships out in the ocean. Seeing it working on a small scale, it's very encouraging for the large scale.
1: I think the most promising thing uh, with these tests is that it shows that the rocket or airframe can be launched and go through the stresses of landing and then relaunch. Obviously, New Shepherds launched five times. SpaceX anticipates being able to use Falcon 9 cores 10 times without refurbishment. And then with the interplanetary transport system, they want their first stage booster to be able to be reused a thousand times. So with these initial reusability efforts, we're seeing the paradigm of we have to throw the rocket away every time to where the space shuttle was. We use it and we have to completely rebuild, refurbish it to use it again to much more rapid use where we can launch it several times with very little maintenance uh, and then get that flight rate up. And is New Glenn reusable too? Yeah, New Glenn's reusable. Uh, now, New Glenn is uh,
0: Blue Origin's large-scale launcher that they just recently announced.
1: Yeah, and it's it's going to be interesting because the positive thing with New Shepard is that they get to fine-tune the terminal phase of flight where you're going from subsonic speeds to landing, mm. right? And that was a challenge for SpaceX, Uh, for those failed crash barge landings, obviously. So uh, Blue Origin's getting practice. They get to refine their algorithms, check their sensor data. Um, With New Glenn, they'll have to do all of the hard parts where they're going to be going into, still a suborbital trajectory, but they're going to be going a lot faster, a lot higher. They're going to have aerodynamic heating. They're going to be going supersonic, hypersonic speeds when they reenter. And that's going to be, a big challenge. So that's kind of the stuff that awaits them in that New Glenn development cycle. Also, uh, there was rumors that New Shepard, like that BE-3 Hydrolox engine and Hydrolox stage, would be the second stage for the very big brother rocket, which is now New Glenn. That's actually not the case, where we're seeing the BE-4 is going to have a sea level engine uh, for the first stage, and then a methane-powered probably BE-4, vacuum-optimized engine for the second stage. And then a New Glenn Advanced, which would have a third stage, which would be Hydrolox. Uh, so they're not getting a direct uh, transfer of hardware to New Glenn. So New Glenn is going to be an entirely new rocket. It's going to have to do entirely new new software and new challenges. Uh, but they've shown rapid progress, which is always good to see.
0: Yeah. Um, a little bit about the in-flight abort itself. Yeah. Um, In the past with nasa rockets and things there was the launch or the abort tower which was like a rocket engine above the capsule that ignites engines that um you know point out at an angle and literally plucks the capsule away from you know the what it's aborting from and spacex has their super draco engines placed radially around the sides of their uh new crew dragon capsule but um The new Shepard's capsule has an engine in the center at the bottom of the capsule. Mm -hmm. So when it ignites, it literally like burns the top of the Shepard launch stage. Yeah. Um, So that was just strange to me, but um, it worked. And even after, you know, burying the flames, the fuel tank and and engine launch stage landed properly. So I thought that was really cool. It's kind of. Yeah, that, was, weird, that was
1: unexpected for them. They had said, uh, they anticipated the new Shepard booster to be destroyed, uh, and then the unlikely event that it survived, they put it in the museum. And so it survived that direct rocket exhaust to the top, looking, you know, a little toasty, but still, it still managed to fly back down. So that's going off to a museum. For the future test, we'll see a new, new Shepard core, uh, so that's really exciting. And then you talked about the different kind of launch abort uh, systems. Uh, both SpaceX and Boeing with Dragon Crew Dragon and uh, CST-100 Starliner with Boeing are both pusher stages, where the engines are at the bottom and they push the capsule up, while Apollo, Gemini, Mercury all had polar stages on top. And I think it's really interesting uh, talking a little bit about safety, where if you look at Mercury and Gemini, they had that rocket hoisted with a tower, uh, and that had an, an unprotected capsule on the top. They literally just bolted a tower with a rocket on top, and that pulled it off, and they detached the tower. Starting with Apollo, because the capsule was heavier, they had to have a much bigger rocket motor to get the same acceleration. And because of just the increased diameter, they expected that some of that rocket exhaust was going to hit the capsule. So that was the first capsule that had an arrow shell that fitted over the capsule, uh, and then you had the tower coming out of that, and so the, that shell would protect the capsule. Right. And you see that with uh, Orion yeah, as Orion a, a much uh, similar system. Uh, we talked with a Lockheed Martin uh, employee. We talked with Dustin about that new launch escape system and how they've you know, re-engineered some of those systems to make it even safer. Yeah, and that, um, that
0: interview will be coming out in a, in another episode Um So stay tuned for that.
1: Yeah, and then with uh, the New Shepard capsule, they have a solid rocket booster inside the center core of the capsule with the nozzle sticking down. Uh, And, you know, solid rocket boosters are in general not considered very safe for crew travel. Uh, But this is, again, not a mandatory use on every flight, right? This is for in case there's an issue with the booster, that motor's going to get the capsule away. Uh, I believe they have a different set of engines, of solid uh, boosters, for cushioning the landing.
0: Oh, it's a different... It's not the abort mm-hmm. engine?
1: Yeah, so that lets... Um, very similar to what Soyuz does. Lets it have a softer landing on the Right brand.
0: before it hits the ground, it zeroes out all remaining velocities, so you just... Shh.
1: Nah, more not, not zero. Close enough. It's like hitting the wall at 20 miles an hour instead of 40 miles an hour.
0: <laughs> so... Um, why do you say that solid rocket boosters are not, not really good for, for manned missions?
1: So the main uh, issue with them is that they are, once you start them, you can't easily or reliably turn them off. Right? So with liquid engines, you have a ton of computers monitoring all the turbo pumps, all the pressures. So if you see something that's out of range, you can begin the shutdown process right. and shut down that engine before it explodes violently. With a solid rocket booster, you really can't do that. Uh, with ICBMs, they have a release mechanism where you can kind of vent the top of the, the cylinder of the solid rocket booster to kind of like put out the flame. Uh, but again, that's not a very reliable system. And I don't think uh, the space shuttle boosters had that. Uh, And so just in general, that's kind of the big uh, issue. Also, uh, all of the fuel is pre-mixed, right? So with a liquid fueled rocket, you have tanks separated. And as we saw with the Falcon 9 pad explosion, you have uh, lots of oxidizer and lots of fuel separated, uh, and depending on how well that's mixed, you can actually have an explosion that has a much reduced... uh, Explosive potential, just mm-hmm. because that fuel doesn't get mixed, it just burns instead of forming that big shock wave. Uh, with solid rocket boosters, once that ignites, it's it's oh, a big bomb.
0: All bets are off, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more thing before we get to the IAC discussion, um, TJ, can you can you share this? News story?
1: Yes. Yeah, so uh, Bloomberg Technology reported on October fourth that the Boeing CEO Dennis Mullenberger is vowing to beat SpaceX to the surface of Mars. Obviously, Elon Musk at IAC brought out his whole plan for not only landing the first humans on Mars, but the system that could land the next million after. Uh, and so Boeing, their response uh, at a conference was that the first that they were very confident that the first rocket. To land on Mars would be a Boeing-made rocket.
0: First things first, was this off the cuff?
1: So this was at the Chicago event on innovation earlier this week. So the the quote was uh, that he was convinced the first person to step foot on Mars will arrive there riding a Boeing rocket.
0: I see. Can we let's talk a little bit about what presence Boeing has in the launch market today? By a Boeing rocket, does that mean participation with the United Launch Alliance, which is a Boeing and Lockheed? joint venture
1: yeah so uh this is going to get into the the kind of military industrial complex in which uh government payloads get launched. So United Launch Alliance is the main U.S. provider of military launches uh, and competitor SpaceX. And that was a merger between Lockheed Martin and Boeing in 2006. The Atlas line of rockets was developed by Lockheed Martin and the Delta line of rockets was built by Boeing. And so ULA provides launch services so they directly interact with customers, they take the rocket, uh, they put the payload on and launch it. But the actual rockets are built uh, by, by Boeing and Lockheed Martin as contractors, ah, right? Okay. So Boeing is still manufacturing these rockets. Obviously, Starliner is getting built by Boeing uh, to serve NASA's commercial crew program. Now, you go into NASA, NASA, uh, they're using cost plus contracts. uh, And when we talk about SLS, and we talk about Orion, those are NASA projects, but they are working with contractors like Lockheed Martin and Boeing to make those a reality. So NASA is kind of leading the design there uh, and leading the funding push for that. And so those are generally what we consider to be NASA developed vehicles. And so you look at this quote, and it's a Boeing... Powered rocket will take us to Mars. If you look at the current NASA plan, which uses SLS to somehow send things to Mars, they haven't figured that out. Um, (laughs) But if you look at at SLS, that would be a rocket manufactured by Boeing and mostly designed by NASA, right? So in that case, SLS would be the rocket the CEO is talking about.
0: I mean, that's a a bold claim, especially to make after um, the details we we were shown at IAC. I mean, I'm hesitant to really go after him on this uh, since it seems from what we've been from what the public has been shown to be a little bit um, a reach. But I'm I'm hesitant to, like, flare up on this. But at the same time, if he's making claims like that, I feel like he should back it up with some information to the public.
1: Yeah, and, and this is obviously in direct contrast to Elon Musk's presentation at IAC, uh, where that was uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX presenting their next generation rocket, where SpaceX is going to develop this. It's not part of any current development program like Falcon 9 and Dragon War. It's like, we've come up with this rocket. We are working on the engines. We're working on the tanks. Uh, we have a very... Uh, rigorous timeline to get these things flying. Uh, and then we're going to f- figure out a way to get these to Mars, right? And that's going to be a, kind of a SpaceX-led push. Now, we're eventually gonna talk about all of the details of that and, you know, those big questions that are remaining about that plan. But with Boeing, Boeing does not have a, a dedicated company-wide push of, we're going to develop a Boeing rocket uh, that allows people to go to Mars. They're working with NASA, they're doing what NASA asked them. But if NASA changes its mind, Boeing's not going to continue to develop SLS, right? Uh, and also with that Journey to Mars program, right now, Orion and SLS are the two funded elements. But you have several very important uh, elements that haven't been funded, mainly being the crew transfer vehicle. They'll take people from Earth orbit to Mars orbit and then the Mars lander, right? Those are two key elements of a Mars mission that... NASA hasn't fully funded, fully uh, locked down, and which uh, SpaceX has. With the ITS, that second stage is that spaceship that lands on Mars. Obviously, there's other questions about, you know, habitats and what those people are going to be doing and living uh, in on Mars. Uh, But those are, both companies haven't answered those questions either.
0: One thing that I want to bring up that is the most direct contrast to, to SpaceX, it's not, for me, it's not the hardware side. It's the competition aspect. So Mr. Mullenberger is presenting this as sort of a competition, like we'll get there first. And personally, I'd like to see private companies like Boeing, like SpaceX, um, working with NASA and working with each other to make it humanity's push to get to Mars. Although, I mean, competition does kind of drive things to, to be advanced more quickly. But at the same time, it's lacking that community aspect of working together. Um mm-hmm. Not to put Elon on the spot again, but that's something he mentioned specifically um, is that SpaceX was looking for a private-public partnership.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about the funding for ITS in a bit. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, like with, with SpaceX, they're starting that funding push and they're going to develop because that's what SpaceX wants to do, right? They see a financial or a philosophical reason in case of Elon Musk to provide a way to get to Mars. Uh, Boeing has really in the past, their space activities have been led by what NASA wants or what paying customers want, right? So if we see in the next year or two that NASA wants to develop a deep space uh, transfer vehicle, and then Boeing gets the contract, then Boeing would be in that race, right? Uh, but even if you look at ULA, which is kind of a hybrid of Boeing and Lockheed, uh, with Asus they have a very uh, aggressive project of, we have this new second stage, at we're going to be launching it in the mid 2020s. uh, And then that enables us to do all sorts of activities. And that's something that ULA wants to do, Then ULA sees a market for. Uh, And that's just something we, with this statement we haven't seen from Boeing. Now, we could in the next week or month or something, see Boeing come out with a white paper of, this is our new architecture, and that we're looking for NASA or other companies to help fund this. Uh, But that's not what we got with this statement, right? And so... To be fair, that's not what...
0: I don't think that was the point of of this statement. It sounded like this wasn't part of a prepared, larger press release, uh, which is something we would expect with um, a claim of of this scope or this magnitude to our community, at least.
1: (laughs) Um, so, So it implies that their response to the ITS announcement was that that's cool. That's never going to happen. We're very confident that NASA is going to keep funding SLS and eventually figure out some way to land something on Mars bigger than a rover.
0: All right, so let's move on. Let's actually talk about the International Astronautics Conference
1: 2016. Yes, so there's a lot of things that happened. Uh, We're going to talk about the big thing that happened. Uh, Obviously, the announcement of the interplanetary transport system. And honestly, I think that that theme of um, interplanetary
0: and getting people to Mars was a theme that carried through with a lot of other talks. And um, right now, as we're recording, Hurricane Matthew is kind of in the area of the space coast, uh, so we weren't able to speak with Robin, um, who was at the IAC. But like, it, it was a, everybody was thinking about this. It wasn't just like, oh, this is the big headlines all people
1: care about. It was a major part of everybody that was there. Step one, watch the announcement on YouTube. It's yeah. an hour and a half. Watch that. Do not listen to the Q&A. Please don't listen to the Q&A. We'll talk about this later. Please don't. You will save yourself a lot of trouble. Uh, the official SpaceX uh, recording doesn't have the Q&A in it anymore. Nope. Cut it out. Good stuff.
0: And by the time this releases, Elon will probably have already done a Reddit AMA. Yes. But, uh, Elon Musk will has promised to do an Ask Me Anything, which is basically he goes on Reddit.com and anybody can ask him a question. The ones people vote the highest will be seen at the top and he'll answer questions that the community asks. And he'll be hosting this on Reddit.com slash r slash SpaceX. Yes. On the second day of the Congress, they literally moved some walls in the the hall that they gave the speech in, Um, and Elon was there in the middle of the stage. It it looked a lot like, honestly, one of those Apple things that happen every year where they unveil a new iPhone. And um, if you listen to some other podcasts and some other news stories that have come out from people that were there, that's what it was like. Everybody was excited, not just...
1: For technical reasons, but... There were stampedes. <laughs> uh, it was, it was, from it's what it... we've, like, the reports we saw, it was a crazy, just so much excitement to just get in the room and sit down. And then, like, the lights dimmed and then this experience happened. Yeah, so but it, it was
0: like a, like, this is something that's honestly strange for space. I feel like everything is super technical. And
1: Well, this, this talk was super technical for the people. So, exactly, you know, if you've watched the Dragon 2 unveil or like a Model S... Yeah. Uh, or just a Tesla unveiling, right? They have this level of production value, uh, but they're basically, you know, they're selling products, right, they're like, this is a new product, these are the cool key features. And I go into a little bit of technical details behind that, but these are the key features to get people excited, uh, and then just kind of present that, which is very similar to what Apple does. With this keynote, there was several main ideas they're trying to get across, right? It's obviously unveiling the interplanetary transfer system. So like showing what it looks like, giving concrete numbers about how big it is, how much can it carry, all of that, uh, talking about the mission profile that's going to do. And the reasoning behind some of the
0: the design decisions.
1: And then the the second part, which was very suitable to the IAC, was that justification, right? Where they they compared the different fuel types. They compared kerosene, hydrolox, and methane, and they, they showed... This is what we compared it against. This is why we chose methane. Uh, they talked about in situ resource utilization. They broke down like, OK, this is where we're going to get our, our water from. This is where we're going to get our CO2 from. This is the steps. Uh, and for that, that was you know obviously very technical focus, right? And pres- showing that off to the, the key uh, leaders in the aerospace industry and also the lead engineers in the aerospace industry. Uh, and then lastly, announcing the idea that SpaceX is going to not only bring humans to Mars, but allow anyone or anything to get to Mars, and that opens up everything else. Uh, the, one of the key moments for me during the talk was Elon Musk talking about if you have infinite dollars, right, you can go pretty much anywhere on the surface of the world within 24 hours, right? You can fly to the South Pole, jump out, with a parachute, land on the South Pole, you can go to Mount Everest, jump out, and try to land on the top of Mount Everest. But we have the technology and methods and infrastructure to go anywhere we like on the planet. Right? But if you had infinite dollars, you would not be able to go to Mars. The technology just doesn't exist. Right? Uh, and so what Elon Musk wants to do with ITS is create the technology to for that people who have the money can go to Mars. And it's going to start out, it's going to be expensive. Right? Uh, but the goal and the, the way the whole system is designed is to get those costs to $500,000 $500, a seat down to 200000 down even to $100,000. Uh, and that way, not only can the uber-rich finally be able to go to Mars if they want to, but middle-class Americans and middle-class world citizens can be able to go to
0: Mars as well. And to open it up for for research as well. Like, yeah. like we're university students, before CubeSats, which are really cheap to build, satellites that you could pretty much buy parts for off the shelf, we wouldn't be able to do anything with satellites. So, you know, it started out just being the super well-funded military intelligence during the Cold War, which was super important. But now the cost has come down and the technology has been developed enough so that people like students like us can can build a satellite and hopefully we can move on from low Earth orbit and just be like, oh, yeah, I'm a freshman in college and I'm building an experiment for Mars. That's what Elon is, is trying to say.
1: Yeah, and you can see that with their roadmap. With, we've, we've talked about Red Dragon on the show uh, with the first launch in 2018, right? They're going to launch a modified Crew Dragon to Mars and land propulsively softly on the surface, uh, and if that mission goes well or it doesn't go well, in 2020, with a new launch window, they're going to be launching another Dragon and maybe even more, right? And that means that... If you're a university researcher who has a great idea of, I want to do an experiment on Mars, you now know it's like, okay, every two years, if I get an experiment that can fit inside Crew Dragon, I can have it land on Mars, right? And that means that those, you know, those white paper ideas can finally be, you know, given money and produced and then actually put on a rocket and sent to another planet instead of having to be with the NASA approach with you have very expensive uh, lander missions where you have to optimize every aspect to get the most life out of the uh, the one robot. Uh, with just this supply train to Mars, you can you can send an experiment, and if it fails, you can send it again two years later. Uh, and we can see that kind of progressing. Yeah. And if you look at the timeline Elon Musk talked about with ITS, starting in the uh, mid-2020s, we're gonna have large amounts of cargo into Mars. Uh-huh. Instead of, you know, a couple tons, we're talking about hundreds of tons. Uh, and then finally, people.
0: I think it's worth kind of breaking down the hardware of the interplanetary transport system uh, before we talk about it so we can kind of establish that
1: foundation. Yeah, let's let's not talk about specs. All right. You've watched the video. He talked about all the specs. It's a big rocket. It's bigger than the Saturn V. Yeah. Uh, the main thing to take away with it is that it has a reusable first stage uh, and then a second stage spaceship. Uh, and the when that launches, the fuel of the second-stage spaceship is what gets into low Earth orbit, we're assuming. Uh, that booster then propulsively returns to not only the launch site, but the actual launch pad. It doesn't have landing legs. It actually comes down in the socket and then gets grabbed. Really? Okay. Uh, and so, you know, that is a ver- that shows the confidence that SpaceX is getting in those return landings where, you know, they finally are able to hit the barge, they've been landing closer and closer to the middle of the barge, they landed on land very precisely, uh, and they think that they can get that down to, you know, that sub-meter precision to land in that launch mount. Uh, The other key feature is the refuelers, right? So uh, to have a functioning mission to Mars, you only need three parts. You need one booster that can be reused, you need one spaceship, and then you need one refueler spaceship, Uh, and that takes out the cargo hold and the People compartment. I'll uh, replace that with people compartment. People compartment. Replace that with more fuel, and so they think uh, anywhere from three to five additional fueler launches will will go up, will dock to the spaceship, and refuel its tanks entirely. And that means that entire uh, spaceship with people and cargo can then go all the way to Mars, right. uh, aerobrake, and then land propulsively on the surface.
0: Right, and and that lets them launch from Earth. Uh, basically, with the tanks dry mm-hmm. so they can save weight on yeah,
1: the. When they're not dry, so that though that spaceship launches full, and then has to bring up four hundred fifty tons to low Earth orbit, uh, which is gotcha. you know an insane amount already, uh, for any rocket, and then you have to refuel it and take it all the way to Mars, uh, so that's going to be yeah. very crazy. And
0: all of these engines that they're, they plan to use on both stages are. Uh, Variants of the Raptor engine, um, which we talked about in the in the last episode.
1: Yeah, so the obviously the first stage has forty two uh, sea level optimized Raptors. Right. And the the spaceship has six vacuum optimized Raptors for the trans Mars injection, and then three surface level. Uh, we assume surface level. Uh, Raptors for Mars landing and also Earth landing when it returns. And again,
0: those are designed differently for being optimized for space operation and for in-atmosphere operation.
1: Yeah, they have different uh, nozzle ratios, so... The vacuum optimized ones have much larger bells. The way the first stage's engines are arranged is that there's a ring of 6 with a center engine in the middle, a ring of 14 and then a ring of 21 for a total of 42. And that center ring of 7 is are the engines that can gimbal. And so that lets you have, you have some thrust control to orient the rocket. Uh, and so then, not
0: all of you can't steer all of the engines. Only the center ones are used for steering.
1: Exactly, and that saves a ton of uh, dry mass because instead of having every engine have to have the actuators. Uh, and gimbals. You don't
0: need all that hardware if you're not going to steer it.
1: Yeah, you only need uh, the center engines. And they talked about a little bit of you know uh, during launch when all 42 are firing, if you want some more throttle control, you can kind of throttle down one side. Uh, But the idea is for that center column to be able to vector and give you the control. Uh, And then with the spaceship, the same thing, the center three can vector uh, and the six outer ones are uh, locked together.
0: One question um, I had when I was watching the talk, and I, I think other people might have too. Why not have big ginormous engines instead of having 42 small ones? If you add up the weight, or if you add up the mass of all the small ones, wouldn't it add up to just a bit? what would be equivalent for a bigger engine?
1: Yeah, so this was a question that people have been asking Elon a lot in the past year or so. Uh, and what you find is that if you have an engine that you can optimize for thrust to weight, that means that you can add more engines And as long as that structural mass and plumbing mass doesn't offset the thrust-to-weight ratio, then having more small engines is better than having a big engine.
0: So, like, if I did do the math and said, okay, each engine makes this thrust and has this mass, if I added them up, it would be more thrust for the amount of mass than... A couple big engines. If you do the math, it works out to where it's more. Yeah, efficient. and
1: it, it's not just a pure like math thing. It's more of an engineering challenge as well, right? With the F1 is still going to be the largest uh, single chambered engine. And that was the Saturn V. That was that the first stage of Saturn V, uh, and with. ITS, the first booster is going to have three and a half times the amount of thrust because it has 42 Raptors. Uh, But when you have a bigger engine, uh, you start getting very interesting uh, issues in the combustion chamber and also in the nozzle where you can have like incomplete flow, uh, different uh, oscillations, etc. Because you have just a ton of mass you're pumping into that combustion chamber and then have to, you know, equably spread out through the nozzle. And so with the F-1, that had a, a development cycle longer than the Saturn V. They started before uh, the Apollo program was announced, because it was really an Air Force project, and they kept going through all the issues of building such a huge engine, uh, and then finally were able to get it mostly sorted out uh, in time for Apollo. And with a smaller engine, and this is by no means a simple engine anymore, uh, with 30 megapascals of chamber pressure, uh, full flow-stage combustion, it's a very for, technically... yeah For people who... Who don't
0: understand, like, that? that's a lot of pressure in in the chamber. And the chamber is where all the explosions <laughs> happen. And exactly. then you direct it through the
1: nozzle. So, yeah, so it's it, a lot. It, in fact, like, this engine has 3,000 kilonewtons of thrust, uh, but is slightly bigger than Merlin. Just because the chamber pressure is so much higher. It's at 30 mm-hmm. megapascals. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, visually looks very interesting. Uh, But, you know, if you look at the the space shuttle main engine, I think that's at 25 megapascals, which was, you know, for performance reasons, they're getting the performance um, increases at the high pressure uh, with full flow stage combustion. And also that reduces the size and, you know, the general weight of the chamber and whatnot in some ways, obviously. Uh, And so... The, obviously, the example that comes to mind when we hear lots of engines on the first stage is the Soviet N1 yes. rocket, yes. right? People saw the announcement. They're like, didn't the Russians try to put 30 engines on a first stage and it blew up every time? Uh, and yes, yes, they did. <laughs> uh, they blew up a lot of those. Uh, but the issue with that was that every launch of that rocket was the first time those engines were fired. You know, we, we saw a video of the uh, Raptor engine being Test fired at the uh, McGregor. It wasn't a full scale engine. Uh, but um, SpaceX also tests every Merlin before they get put on the rocket and they test the whole rocket before it launches. Uh, with the Russians and with the N1, with those engines, it has an uh, ablatively cooled nozzle, uh, which means if you fire the engine, the nozzle was no longer able to be uh, used for space. Right. The
0: nozzle, ablative means that um, the heat is, it heats up particles of it and the particles are kind of like eroded away, taking some of that heat with them. So if you fire it and it's ablatively cooled, you're degrading your nozzle on purpose to cool it, but that means you can't use your nozzle again.
1: Yeah, so what the Russians did is they did batch testing, right, where if they bought, built three engines or five engines, they test one out of the batch. If that was good, they could then assume the rest of the batch was also good. Uh, with When you're working with very high-tolerance rocket engines, it doesn't always work out. Yeah. Uh, just ask SpaceX and their struts. Batch right. testing uh, can fail sometimes. Uh, and so, now that we have, you know, much uh, more improved non-destructive testing before even the static fire nowadays, uh, also being able to static fire every engine, uh, they think it's, uh, they're confident of putting that many engines on the bottom. And with Falcon Heavy, they're going to be launching 27 engines, right? So, they're already going to be moving up from, from 9 to 27 uh, and up to 42 uh, in a short period of time. And also, another interesting thing in the talk was... Uh, Hawthorne is able to put out roughly 300 engines a year, Yeah. Uh, Merlin engines. And we've talked about in the past how reuse of the first stage means parts of the SpaceX production line are going to be you know, retooled and changed and whatnot. Uh, and because of the high uh, chamber pressure for Raptor, because it's not such a physically larger engine than Merlin, uh, Elon t- talked about how the existing Merlin production line obviously going to have to be retooled, but it's sized for engine that dimensions. Uh, And so they could be relatively easily retooled to work with Raptor engines. Yeah, and obviously, you know, right now Falcon 9 is still an expendable uh, mode for customers where customers buy a new rocket every time, Uh, with SES going to be the first reused launch probably uh, before the mid of next year. Uh, And that means that they have to keep that engine line going as they increase flight rate. Uh, and so once, you know, reused booster, boosters become the norm and they start selling exclusively new uh, boosters, that means that engine production line, they'll have to take a part for obviously the second stage Merlin vacuum uh, and then take, uh, then they can start with Raptor. Uh, and so Elon talked about how that would not be a insurmountable challenge, right? Uh, which when you think of producing 40 engines, 50 engines per rocket, you um, You think that's just insane.
0: One other thing that was impressive, technically speaking, was the fuel tank for the spaceship. First things first, like the rest of this whole ITS system, it's massive. It's huge. Um, But another really significant thing is that it is made of carbon fiber. TJ, you've talked about this in the past with carbon fiber, this is your jam.
1: Yeah, I predicted this, uh, you know, we had some pretty good rumors before the announcement, but I have been talking about this forever. Obviously the big example in aerospace for carbon fiber tanks and the failures of carbon fiber tanks was the X-33. And that had a uh, that was a single-stage-to-orbit vehicle It had a oxygen tank and a hydrogen, liquid hydrogen tank.
0: Yeah. NASA um, experimental plane, space plane.
1: Yeah. And I was reading an article uh, on NASA space flight that I'll link in the description that talks about the challenges there, where they weren't uh, building a non-spherical tank, so it had lots of different edges. Uh, In order to save weight, they went with composites, and they had issues with delaminating, right? Where part of a carbon composite tank is the carbon fiber, uh, but also the resin that binds those fibers together. And when you get to cryogenic temperatures, those have a tendency to fail. Uh, And so I encourage you to read that article because it talks about how, you know, they eventually figured out how to make carbon fiber tanks work, but for various reasons, the program was canceled.
0: But that knowledge stayed with us.
1: And that was with 1990s composites knowledge right? Uh, Now we've had, you know, composite fighter jets, composite commercial airliners with the 787 composites, big composite structures are now the norm uh, in aerospace, except they haven't been for rockets. And so uh, with the test tank, which is for the ITS spaceship, which is probably the smallest tank uh, on the entire vehicle, uh, they were able to show that, they could manufacture a tank to that dimensions. Uh, Mainly the big challenging part is with the domes, obviously those curved domes on top, uh, it's relatively easily uh, to put in extensions Mm -hmm. into that. Uh, Then uh, Elon talked about how they had done cryogenic tests on that and hadn't detected any leaks, uh, which is a good sign. It's not guaranteed that the tank is 100% perfect and they can move on. uh, That's a good sign and that their initial techniques to mitigate those risks have worked at least preliminarily. Uh, Now, the big thing is to, you know, get four sets of those tanks, right? Two for the spaceship and two for the booster of much, much longer, larger sizes and build a development article. Uh, that is a really good sign uh, there. Now, the benefit uh, with carbon fiber is that you can get a much, much lower dry mass, right? Where we look at the rocket equation, delta V, which is the true, you know, measure of where a rocket can go and what it can do, uh, is dependent on the ratio between dry mass and wet mass. Dry mass being...
0: If you empty all the fuel tanks, you take everything that's not propellant out of it, what mass is left over? So the rest of the spaceship and wet mass being a fully fueled uh, spaceship.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so uh, with tanks, uh, as Elon talked, talked about in his presentation, those scale up with the, the square cube loss. So the bigger your rocket is, uh, you get increasing returns with that. Uh, however, uh, another critical factor is the material, right? where if you can create a cylindrical tank out of carbon fiber, you can cut a percentage off that dry mass, uh, which gives you much larger performance gains, because you're taking a percentage off the total mass, and then that increases logarithmically with uh, your wet mass. And so that lets you have a rocket, a two-stage rocket, which is very impressive for a Mars architecture, uh, then have enough uh, capacity to get a very large spaceship into orbit, uh, and then have that very large spaceship able to be refueled, send all the way to Mars, land, and then come back.
0: So why do you say that a two-stage um, is very significant for Mars? I'm, I'm thinking back to Saturn V. Going to the moon, there were multiple stages, what, four or five stages where you'd have the big rocket on the bottom, that would drop away, when, you, and then higher up in the atmosphere or whatever, you'd have a smaller tank and, like, the big parts would drop off. Yeah.
1: The, the booster had three stages, and right. then you can think of the command module and the lunar module as two more.
0: Right. So that obviously has intuitively some diminishing returns. Yeah. So why have two stages instead of something like three or, or more? And why is that impressive to have two?
1: So the traditional kind of uh, rule of thumb in aerospace is that been with stages, that increases your mass fraction. The biggest gains are obviously adding the second stage and then adding a third stage. Uh, after a third stage, uh, unless you're very, very careful about added mass on those additional stages, they don't have a lot of performance gain. You're adding a lot of complexity, a lot of points of failure, uh, for not a huge increase in performance. Uh, so a lot of rockets are three-stage rockets. Uh, the Space Shuttle, for example, right? And Saturn V. Um, with Falcon 9, they went with two stages because it was primarily a low-earth orbit rocket, um... Falcon Heavy
0: is three stages, though, isn't
1: it? Yeah, I guess. Uh, the aerospace industry likes to call those, you know, zero-stage boosters. Um, <laughs> okay, okay but yeah, the, the original Falcon I was two stages to minimize uh, staging, staging transitions, because they identified that that was the main... One of the main points of failure for rockets was shedding that weight via staging. And so by minimizing the number of staging events, you can reduce risk. Uh, and so I think that we look at ITS, they could increase the performance by adding a third stage. Uh, They probably would still need orbital refueling, which kind of negates some of that. Uh, But they're looking at reusability, which is a factor that wasn't, you know, identified in the textbooks, right? They can easily return a first stage because it's not in orbit. Uh, With the second stage, with the the second stage tanker, it's going to have a lot of fuel to then give a little bit of fuel to the spaceship and then re-enter and land.
0: And if you have an even higher stage that would be moving faster and be smaller so it would be harder to recover.
1: Yeah so having having a third stage kind of like in the middle there that also has to have fuel to propulsively land uh, then that really hurts the diminishing returns of staging and so for them it's you know it's a really simple really simple kind of (laughs) in your quotes yeah uh scaling up a Falcon 9 and so they, you know they they can think of ITS as delivering a large payload to low-Earth orbit. And then orbital refueling, which is going to be a very new technique, is going to let that low-Earth orbit spaceship go to Mars and go beyond.
0: OK, let's talk a little bit about the implications of this talk and really what it means for the aerospace industry um, and for the you know humans getting to Mars. Like, what, what does it all mean? Um, so I've got something to say on this, but why don't you go first, and then we'll we'll move into mine next.
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, we kind of already mentioned this a little bit, but this is the official confirmation that SpaceX wants to provide, basically a rail a railroad to Mars. Uh, we're going to have vehicles, starting with Crew Dragon, and then becoming ITS vessels, going to Mars every opportunity for the remainder of time right? So, like, we're going to start with small science experiments, then we're going to have a vehicle that can take lots of cargo, take people, and then eventually take lots and lots of people. Uh, And that for everyone on Earth is a great, great thing. Um, The big issue with the presentation was that funding slide, right? We had a couple fun little jokes of, you know, the South Park, underpants known profit, uh, Kickstarter, things like that. Um, But really, you know, SpaceX, if you look at what Elon talked about, they're putting in tens of millions of dollars every year currently. So like that presentation we got with the CAD drawings, the development tank and Raptor was tens of millions of dollars a year.
0: Yeah, in in engineers time. Because when an engineer that works for SpaceX is working on ITS, that's SpaceX investing money in that engineer, like paying the engineer to do it. Exactly. And exactly. so where's that money coming from? That's coming from SpaceX's pocket right now.
1: Right? Yeah, and that's that's coming from the, the profits they make from launches. Uh, they talked about that once Falcon 9 is mature, uh, once the thrust upraiser put in set and whatever other small things, hopefully small, uh, to get put in, uh, Falcon, the large group of engineers working on Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy can then be retasked to ICS. Uh, and that means that you go from tens of millions of dollars to hundreds of millions, anywhere from, you know, 100 to 300 million. In in labor
0: costs alone, really?
1: Well, yeah, but, you know, in that engineering talent of that cost. And Elon talked about the total cost being for the development program being $10 billion. Billion. Yes. And then the actual labor cost to manufacture the vehicles being in the hundreds of millions. Uh, and then with reuse, that letting the per trip, per ticket price be that low. Uh, and so the big thing is that, you know, SpaceX putting in $300 million a year is a ton of money. But if you look at the $10 billion goal, that means that they're not going to be flying humans to land on Mars in 2024, 2025. They're looking at 20 to 30 years, right? Right. Uh, But that was a current snapshot of what SpaceX is able to do now. There's a lot of what-ifs and a lot of possible changes that is what Elon Musk was kind of going fishing for, right? Obviously, the big thing is a private public partnership of getting nasa to somehow start pumping money into spacex
0: and money and talent and development and i mean that you can all add that up as costs right well
1: nasa is not going to like offer like talent it's going to be spacex employees doing it nasa just provides the money
0: so like with commercial crew something similar. yeah like like
1: that that would be the ideal thing right so nasa wouldn't be providing engineers or designs spacex would be doing that um but there's other things that NASA could contribute, right? So uh, if the Congress, Congress or NASA could dump money into SpaceX for the booster, uh, booster and spaceship, then NASA or other companies can start working on the habitats and the rovers and the ISRU systems and the power systems and greenhouses and all that stuff, which is what SpaceX hasn't been focusing on. They've been focusing on, as their video showed, Getting humans to step foot onto Mars—that's what they're going to do. Uh, they want everyone else to take the step after that. Now we could see other countries throwing money at SpaceX. Would uh, that be a very interesting uh, kind of situation? Did you have any in mind? Uh, Saudi Arabia's kind of got a lot of a lot of money. They're putting into a Mars lander. Uh, they could have ten billions, ten billion dollars thrown SpaceX's way, uh, that's going to be very interesting to see how the U.S. government reacts. Mm -hmm. But there are, you know, there are countries that can afford a $10 billion expense.
0: And that's interesting because SpaceX is a private company. Mm -hmm. So since it's in the U.S. and it has to comply with U.S. regulations, but they're free to do pretty much whatever they want within those regulations. Yeah.
1: And, you know, you look at like Boeing and, you know, Lockheed Martin selling fighters to other countries, right? And there's a ton of regulation. ITAR covers that extensively. What SpaceX would do is we're not selling you rockets. We're selling you a ticket to go to Mars. And so it's, it's completely legal for a other uh, country citizen to come to the United States and then take a plane ride someplace else. Uh, this would just be a rocket ride to Mars. The other b- funding approach is philanthropic donations. Uh, not, we're not talking about Kickstarter. We're not talking about people paying f- 50 bucks or even $500,000. We're talking about Bill Gates. We're talking about scale. Bill Gates, uh, Sergey Brin, Larry Page being like, hey, Elon, we've been friends for 20, 30 years. Uh, you slept on my couch when you were broke. I have $10 billion to just give you. And we'll slap a giant Google ro- logo next to the SpaceX <laughs> logo, uh, and then we can go. And that's something that... People were very quick to discount. They're just like, oh, no one's going to donate a Mars colony, right? Like, that's not going to happen. But we're they're in that point where people have enough uh, capital to make this this actually happen. Larry Page and Sergey Brin have gone on the record of like, you know, like, I could see myself donating a significant amount of my money to Elon Musk to, like, make a Mars colony happen. People are very quick to discount that, but it's, it's not off the table. Obviously, Elon's not personally... Uh, like counting on that, there's other opportunities you'd like uh, first. Uh, but that that's definitely just is something that could happen. Um, then the other thing was the SpaceX satellite constellation.
0: right So SpaceX has a um, they have engineers and they have development like engineering space. they have a building in Seattle, Washington and they've said that this building is for the purpose of developing satellites. that would be in a constellation to give Wi-Fi to everybody. Yep. And obviously, like uh, the point is not just to be the new, you know, Time Warner Cable or Comcast that you can pay for Internet, but also to support all the inter- industries that would use high speed Internet, um, such as trading companies. The potential for having high speed Internet, like just the sheer numbers of people that would buy it and how much these, some of these people would pay. That in itself is a significant reason to do it. Like the money is there. Whether they want to use it to get to Mars or not, as a business, it's a very smart thing to invest in.
1: Yeah, and so SpaceX announced they they wanted to do a satellite constellation several years ago, and that's kind of been on the back burner. They are going to be launching uh, a couple CubeSats to actually test some of the radio hardware, uh, but that's all we've kind of heard. And people asked at IAC yeah. about SpaceX satellite constellation, and he said... This is not the time to talk about that. We're going to have a separate event. Right. Uh, Gwynne Shotwell, the COO of SpaceX, uh, commented that the big, one of the big sticking factors for that is the cost of the ground receiver. Um, and you, if you're going to have a global internet network uh, with the idea of having you know individual people having those ground stations, those have to be affordable. They have to be low size, low power, and affordable. Uh, and so that seems to be kind of the sticking point for them. So... We'll probably hear about it, Um, but the thing is um, that would be a way for SpaceX to get that $10 billion of disposable capital to put into ITS because if you look at the launch the space launch industry, the launches are a very small portion of the money involved in space. The vast amount of revenue comes from the satellite operators selling services. And so with reusability, with margins coming down, obviously trying to be buoyed by just more launches, moving into the satellite services market lets them bring in a lot more money uh, for a lot lower capital cost. And so ideally, uh, that would be a way for SpaceX to get the Google levels of income, right? Where Google, their ad business is so profitable that lets them fund all of their other free services, pretty much. Uh, if SpaceX could get SpaceX Net up and running and become very profitable, that would let them fund ITS and all of its development.
0: Do you think, w- even with SpaceX Net, as we're calling it, um, do you think that w- if they get that up and running and start bringing in money from their constellation, that they would still require the private public partnership and? philanthropic donations and all these other types of funding do you think that SpaceX net could fully fund it
1: SpaceX net as what was proposed years ago could where you have complete global coverage uh, and then we're, we're not talking about like a, a service that people in New York City are going to be using right this is to be a low latency high bandwidth service for people who live out in the Midwest who don't have fiber cables going to their houses. Also, for all of the places that don't have access, right, P- places that don't have infrastructure to to lay internet fibers, all of those places can be covered. So that, that is a, a significant chunk of where the revenue comes come from. And also the high-speed uh, internet um, in latency, not in bandwidth, uh, for like banking transactions and other real-time applications, going up into space where you don't have fiber optic uh, signal slowdown or free space losses, you just shoot it uh, through space, you can actually get to a point on Earth faster by going up a little bit around through space and then back down. So that's super valuable for, say, the stock market, stock market traders, things like that. Uh, And just the, the scale of the constellation, we're talking about thousands of satellites, and we're talking about... That much revenue that you could be coming in with millions of customers paying per month, that would that would be enough to not need a government intervention, not need any NASA support, not need any donations. That would fund the development, and they could probably pay for the Pathfinder trips, which we'll get to, uh, and then open up tickets at five hundred thousand or two hundred thousand. And then the last one is obviously Elon on stage was you know very emotional, and he talking about funding and he was. Like if the last option, if no one else wants to h- help out, then like I'll sell my assets and put it into SpaceX, which means, you know, Solar City and Tesla are most likely expecting big growth with Model 3, uh, selling that, kind of getting away from that. Uh, and then that would be the tens of billions of dollars that could fund the development and fund building the first set of rockets. So that is, you know, Elon Musk is very serious about having this get done. And so it's either going to take 10 years is the best case, obviously, if, if support quickly comes out. But either way, we're going to be seeing in the next 10 to 20 years ITS is going to fly unless insurmountable technical hurdles pop up, which is kind of unlikely because we've seen development hardware.
0: One implication I wanted to um, draw out of this announcement and the reaction from everybody is that not only are these you know technologies that are being proposed with ITS and also these claims from competitors and all these things that on the surface seem outrageous, but then you look at it, you break it down, and it's all using technologies and things learned from before. Um, So that, plus everybody's excited. And for me, it doesn't matter if it's SpaceX landing or Boeing landing or NASA landing on Mars. Um, It's the fact that everybody in the industry, or at least like, the people that are capable of doing it are all serious about getting humans to Mars and having that goal and having people take it seriously everybody's always like dreamed of a lunar base but we haven't seen a lot of money put forward for that we haven't seen a lot of development and people saying we're going to do this here's how it's going to happen we've got hardware we're going um on the same level of as we've seen with people getting ready for Mars and I think it doesn't. It doesn't matter that it's SpaceX, whether it's them that has the the hardware or not. It's that somebody does, and it's happening.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think the big thing is you know having that hardware available. Uh, Elon Musk talked about how technology does not automatically improve. You have to have a group, of, a large group of very smart people working on improving it. Uh, you look, talk about you know a moon base or a moon colony. Uh, In the end of the 1960s, with the Saturn V, we could have sent, you know, more people and infrastructure to the moon, and then the follow-on being Nova, we could have, you know, set up a a real moon base, right? But the money at the time wasn't there, and so we lost that technical skill of of... Saturn 5. And then you look at the Space Shuttle and the International Space Station. Uh, if we had still had the Saturn 5, we could have put up a much larger space station for much less cost, but we had lost that skill. We had to kind of reinvent that with the Space Shuttle. Uh, and the Space Shuttle, just because of the way it was designed, the, the things they wanted to achieve with that, wasn't suitable for going to the moon, right? Or putting up large structures. And so that was kind of that, that trade-off we have. And with ITS, You know, it's designed for a hundred plus people to go to Mars or
0: per spaceship,
1: per spaceship. It's very unlikely for a hundred people to be the first hundred to to step onto Mars, right? It's pretty likely we're going to get a lot more cargo, a few people, Uh, but it's designed for a hundred people because that's what he sees in the next 20, 30, 40 years to be the ideal size to be able to send thousands of people or hundreds of thousands. Right, where if you design an architecture, which is what you know, constellation program and journey to Mars and previous Mars plans have been, they've been, you know, flags and footprints. We send five people to Mars, they land, walk around, plant a flag, do some science, come back. But those kind of architectures are not easily scalable. What Elon's done is create an architecture that's already been scaled. And so we can scale it down, uh, for the first merchants to, you know, Reduce right, risk. We don't
0: have that hurdle of scaling up. We don't start small and scale up later. We start big and then, you know, like, yeah, like you said, you just bring a couple people, but it's still capable eventually of bringing a lot of people and you don't have to build a whole new rocket or a whole new capsule to to scale that up. Yeah,
1: I think I think some of Elon's like driving forces, he's looked at the moon, the moon landings where we have the capability to land people on the moon and then we couldn't get the will to send more people to stay there permanently. Uh, And then he looked at, like, there was no will, when SpaceX was founded, there was no will to go to Mars, to send people to Mars. There was no solid plan. And so he, you know, did the steps to help inspire people. And then he's at the point right now is, like, I'm going to do it. Like, I'm going to build the technology to get people there. Uh, And what comes after is up to everyone else, but I will make it possible. but his goal is not just to get people to Mars anymore. His people is to get a self-sustaining colony on Mars. And so he sees there there are easier, theoretically cheaper ways of getting humans on the ground of Mars, right? You can do a smaller rocket. You can do different things. But the whole architecture is designed to get people relatively quickly, right? With he wants to have people on Mars before he dies, obviously, uh, but also to be set up in a way that the next million can follow. And that's a, that's a very important thing that you can see shaping ITS, that you don't see in other architectures, mm-hmm. that you didn't see in Mars Direct.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I really hope that that forward thinking um, continues. Although SpaceX wants to involve NASA and and involve people to help build like habitats and things, do you think they're gonna be the only ones pushing for large-scale colonization of Mars?
1: I think that especially, we'll probably see in the next several years, they will be the only ones where the the initial kind of competitor's pushback is going to be, oh, we can go to Mars with just a few people and it's safer, et cetera. Uh, But then once, you know, once ITS takes off, which is not that far away, 2021, 2022, uh, and there's orbiting overhead, at that point, it's like, Yeah, they're they're going to send that thing to Mars. Design a habitat that can fit in the cargo hold, so that your habitat can be on Mars, Mm -hmm. right? Like that, it's a big, it's a forcing function. Going back to the development of technology, by building a railroad to Mars, a a way to get things to Mars, that means everyone else can start designing things for Mars. That money, that you know, research and development money, that there's a ton of, of. involved in every field can then start being channeled to Mars-specific applications. Because now they have a rocket to go on so
0: they don't have to have that big question mark of, well, how are we going to launch it? Yeah, it, it's, it say- it's
1: no longer a theoretical. It's like, well, if we could go to Mars, then this would, what would be the habitat they would live in. It's like, okay, people are set to land in Mars in the next you know seven years. Let's build the, the building they will live in when they get there. Uh, and that, I think, is going to be a big push across every... Pretty much every subsect of airspace, And you'll, we saw that at IAC where a couple talks uh, changed their title and changed their scope because they anticipated the SpaceX Mars plan. Uh, and we'll see most likely next year way more white papers of talking about different rovers or talking about different subsystems that are going to be flying on these things. Uh, and I think that that's going to accelerate. You're going to have more people putting more money, putting more time, uh, and that Going to give you tangible outcomes uh, instead of what we've had for the last 40 years of white papers. Of, well, you know, if I think about this for a little bit, like this could work and we could do it this way and there's a trade off here, et cetera, et cetera. And you've had thousands of great ideas generated over the past decades about living on Mars and tackling those challenges, but you haven't had hardware built right? Because there's no way it's going to get there in one piece. With the landers, they're either bouncing or you just have that sky crane drop a small lander. Uh, but now being able to bring bulk cargo to Mars is that big di- differentiating factor.
0: All right. So after Elon's presentation, questions were opened up from, from the audience. And the questions that were asked were not on the same caliber as what we saw with the Q&A from this small sat conference um, back in August. You, we did a whole episode on the Q&A session pretty much alone from Gwen Shotwell. And unfortunately, the questions that were asked at IAC were kind of half joking. It was weird. So we're going to talk about what questions we wish were asked and uh, some of the things we're kind of hoping to get out of Elon Musk's
1: um, Reddit AMA. So, you know, Elon Musk had this very in-depth technical presentation talking about the specifications and justifications for the entire interplanetary transport system. Uh, But he didn't include every single detail. Uh, My kind of takeaway was that what was presented was the SpaceX uh, colonization architecture for the next 20 or so years, right? They didn't go into detail about the very first mission, Uh, they didn't go into detail about the next 40, 50 years. When but they,
0: they covered, you know, 85, 80% of the next 20 years, which is a lot to cram into an hour or so Exactly. Or a
1: exactly. And so um, questions I have regarding uh, ITS is what the first mission to Mars will look like. Uh, we kind of mentioned, we're kind of assuming that the first mission is not going to have 100 people. Uh, I want to, you know, give a good solid answer on that of, you know, is it going to be five people and a whole bunch of cargo setting up infrastructure? Is it going to be, you know, 20 people? Um, then uh, in the video, the video was kind of our kind of best take of how an ITS mission is going to operate.
0: Yeah, and the video being the rendering and the computer generated view of what would happen.
1: Yeah, the, the launch, uh, return, heading okay. to Mars and whatnot. Uh, I want to know if there's uh, cargo missions, if cargo versions of ITS will arrive on Mars first, and if so, how many? Uh, To see, you know, just kind of like how that'll work and how much invested capital is going to be required of like how many ITS spaceships need to be built before Before the first people people. sent. Then um, I want to see if the, the first ITS lander that was presented that has, you know, the 100 people plus cargo plus the fuel tanks, if that's going to be the first one built and we're going to see variants of that same shape Or if they're going to be a smaller version for the first mission or if there's going to be larger versions in the future.
0: One question being asked floating around, right now the engines are um, test fired before being integrated with the rocket and then once the whole rocket is together and on the launch pad all nine Falcon 9 engines are lit and tested full throttle before launch. With the ITS having 42 Raptor engines it seems like static firing on the pad with all of them together full throttle doesn't seem feasible to do as a test beforehand. So I'm wondering if that same test regime uh, is going to hold. And same thing with returning. Uh, They intend to propulsively land. Having even just a few Raptor engines coming back to land is going to be really, really loud. (laughs) The Falcon 9 right now is really loud. So I wonder if the launch and return aspects, how much of it will change. I have a feeling it's going to be based off of the same things we have right now because they've kind of followed suit with that throughout of using what they've done before and kind of scaling up. But um, I'm curious to see how much changes between now and then.
1: Something that's really interesting is uh, SpaceX is going to be launching from Pad 39A in Cape Canaveral. Uh, And so that was a old Saturn V launch pad. It's the one uh, Apollo 11 actually launched from. And Falcon Heavy is launching from that. Uh, And so most people assume they're going to build a new launch pad to take the extreme amount of thrust that ITS generates. Uh, And it turns out that the Apollo pad is actually rated to 28 million pounds of thrust uh, and the ITS booster will generate 27.5 million pounds. Cutting it close. So I wonder uh, if they're, you know, uh, designing ITS on that boundary for pad 39A, and that they talked about they're going go to build a pad in Boca Chica uh, if that's going to be a more robust pad. Because we as we saw with Falcon 9, uh, as the Merlins got upgraded, the thrust was increased quite dramatically.
0: So as the ITS is developed and upgraded, do you think there would be similar gains in performance?
1: There there might be. We don't know. We could, uh, We could see, you know an even more powerful ITS, and Elon talked about having you know, even 200 people on a space script. Obviously, that's gonna involve a larger uh, capsule than what we saw already. Last
0: question that um, I kinda wanna talk about with you is that SpaceX started as sort of that startup mentality. Really small amount of people working really hard to do great things. And since then, they've expanded to around four to 5,000 employees um, and tried to stick to the same startup mentality with the development of ITS, such a, um, you know, expansion in scope, technological difficulty, and all these different things, they're going to have to bring a new talent. And so they're going to have to expand. And then you tack on the satellite development, they're going to have to have people to work on those. So the numbers of SpaceX employees is going to grow. I wonder how they're going to handle operating SpaceX itself as a business.
1: The big thing that was announced was that they're moving away from their vertical integration for the entire vehicle from Falcon 9. So like with Falcon 9, pretty much every part is built in-house or in their complex, right? Mm -hmm. Where they take in raw materials, they produce all their Merlin engines, they produce fairings, they produce the actual stage tanks, put it all together, gets tested in McGregor, and then sent to the launch site. All within SpaceX. Yes. Um, With ITS, they talked about building it not in Southern California, building it in the Gulf Coast, uh, potentially in Michoud, uh, the old NASA fabrication building for Saturn V and the space shuttle tanks. Uh, that means that you're going to be splitting employees because you already have a ton of engineering talent in Hawthorne, uh, and one of the advantages SpaceX kind of touts is that the engineering talent's close to the the technical talent. Uh, and it's going to be interesting if Hawthorne becomes kind of an engineering only and then servicing Falcon 9 as that continues to uh, put up satellites and if they're going to start like a new mega factory in the Gulf Coast which Elon Musk likes to do or if they're going to do the political politically smart thing of having different parts built in different states which he, he Elon talked about having, you know, multiple states involved which is great for political contribution but that means different hands of the SpaceX body can't really talk to each other that's that's a really big culture change oh, going for sure of going from one central location to lots of locations this has been SpecsCast, a podcast about
0: the science and technology of space exploration Thanks for listening to get in touch with us send an email to specscast at gmail.com or tweet to us at ritspecs. In the past few weeks, we've gotten some emails from listeners, and it's been really good feedback. Let us know how we can improve the show, and what else you'd like us to talk about. We've been experimenting a lot with the format of the show, and we'd really like to hear from you. And last but not least, we'd like you to rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on SpecsCast. with music by Kevin Hartnell.